Good morning. Merry Christmas. I have waited a long time. I mean, the retailers have started greeting me with that back in August, I think, hoping to part me with some of my, uh, some of my money. And uh, yeah, isn't it great to be here in December? And any of you eat too much on Thanksgiving? Yeah, a bunch of dirty, rotten liars here, I tell you. <laughs> He's a little slow on the draw there. Thank you, Andrew. I appreciate that honesty. Andrew, you and I are going to have a good time today. Have I got a message for these other folks? I want you to know. We're going to be talking today about telling the truth boldly and loudly. No, I am going to get today to launch the uh, new Christmas series called Epic as we talk about uh, the solution to uh, the epic human failure and God's four great events that uh, he addressed it with. And even our e-kids are getting involved with Epic. Um, one of the guys in my weekly men's group earlier this week told us about last Sunday after church, they were having lunch together, and I'm not sure he was real, uh, you know, pleased about having to tell us what they were having, but one of his uh, sons was uh, holding his lunch in his hand, and he looked up, and he'd heard about Epic from class, and he said, Dad, what does Epic mean? And his dad said, oh, it's big, it's huge, it's awesome. And the kid looked in his hand, and he said, then this hot dog is Epic. Yeah. Well, I don't think I've called the hot dog Epic for probably quite a while, but whatever it takes for our kids to tie in with Epic is great for me. And today, we're talking about Christmas and an Epic intervention. Our friend was a professional, attractive, skilled, admired, loved, happened to be married to a pastor. The two of them together made a handsome couple, well-known, highly regarded Ann and I went to the airport in our state, got on a plane, flew to another state, got off, went out in front, and there was a, an RV waiting for us. No, it was not a big black suburban. It was not the FBI, but it was a big RV. Five people were already inside. Ann and I made seven. We drove directly to her home. She didn't expect us to show up. Her husband did. He opened the door. She looked shocked and stunned as the seven of us went past her front door and into the living room, we scattered ourselves around in a circle. Her husband made the group eight, and she was nine. We took out of our pockets or our purses the letters that we had written, and we began to read them one by one. We told her how much we loved her. We told her how much we admired her. We told her the behavior that we had experienced from her because of her addiction that was so detrimental to us and others that we and she loved. And we told her that we were pleading with her to have an intervention and to go into rehab. As we worked around, her husband now was the eighth one to read his letter, and he told her, after she had gone through a range of emotions, flushing red with anger and finally being reduced to tears, told her that all she had to do was to throw a few things in a bag that he had already booked flights for them, and that as we returned, the seven friends to the airport to fly home, that they would go on their flight to yet another state where Anne had set up several months of rehab residential treatment for her, an intervention. Sometimes we just can't find our own way out. And sometimes we're in denial, and sometimes we just don't have the strength or the courage or the wisdom, but sometimes we just can't help ourselves get out. 
And we need to have someone that loves us enough to intervene. And that's exactly what God did today. And I want to look, ask and answer three questions with you about this epic Christmas intervention. And the first question is this. So why did we need an intervention anyway? I'm going to take you to three places in the Bible. These first two verses that are here in a moment, there'll be another slide that will have a couple of other verses. And when we go to the Bible, we do that very purposefully today. You see, we as Christian believers understand that there's three places that we can go for truth. In fact, this is generally true. Uh, going for truth in terms of the existential questions of life that have to do with purpose and meaning. The first place we can go is within ourselves. And some of us have tried that. We've been there and done that. And we've discovered that internally we are not necessarily the best source of truth. But many of your friends or family or loved ones still find truth as something that they discover from in themselves. We understand that. The second potential source is other people. And so we figure, well, if we can't figure it out on our own, maybe somebody's smarter than me. And so we find some kind of a philosopher or a guru and we follow them from truth. But of course, rationally speaking, if I can't figure it out, there's probably not a reason for me to trust some other human being either, right? But that's the second possibility. The third possibility is to go to revelation, God's revealed truth. And as Christian believers, we go to God's word, the Bible, and we believe that to be God's holy inspired scripture to us. And we are willing in that belief to stake our eternal destiny on what the Bible says about truth in our life. It gives us understanding of purpose and meaning, and it tells us who we are, why we are, and how to get where we want to go. These three passages are very clear today in their simplicity and their truthfulness. Would you read out loud the first one with me together? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's pretty short, isn't it? A little kid can get that. I got it when I was five years old. Some of you were children when you first responded to Christ. There is nothing conceptually difficult with that truth. All. How many of us does that include? (laughs) All. If you consider yourself a human being, I actually checked in the last service and one person didn't, so I'm not even going to check in this service. If you consider yourself a human being, by category, you are included in this categorical statement. All of us have sinned. The word was a common term in the original language. It meant to miss the mark. It's what I do when I go to the uh, men's breakfast and turkey shoot. You give me a shotgun and five shells, and you pull five clay pigeons, and I miss the mark on all five of those. I'm very, very good at that. I'm consistent with that, missing the mark. All of us have missed the mark as it relates to God's holiness and perfection and righteousness and justice and love. We have all missed the mark. For we have all sinned, and all of us have fallen And what we fell short of was, what's the phrase? The glory of God. The glory of God is what shows up when God shows up. It's the demonstration, the manifestation of his being there. Some of you remember in the Old Testament stories, they built a tabernacle in the desert, and then later they built a temple. In both times, the glory of God came down on those buildings, and they saw it, and they felt it. Sometimes God's glory was uh, was, uh, hearable. 
It was his voice. At a wedding in Canaan, you could taste his glory. When he turned water into wine, and he said that's where he first began to reveal his glory. Glory is what happens that you can experience when God shows up. And all of us have fallen short of God's glory. This is what the Bible says about our beginnings. That God created the first humans in his likeness and, say it with me if you know, image. His likeness and image. We are image bearers of God. You are his daughter. You are his son. You're created in his image. And it's philosophically one of the reasons that we treat every human being with respect. Even people who have worldviews and philosophies and practices far different from ours. Yes, you even treat Republicans and Democrats and independents with respect. We do, yes. Because we are all image of God bearers. But notice that we were created in his likeness and image. And we fell away from his likeness, his glory. We don't look like God. When we show up in our broken state, people don't say, wow, I think God just showed up. I can hear him from here. I can, I can see him from here, right? Because we fell from his glory. So maybe you've talked with some friends and you've talked with them about Christ and they said, you know, I was a part of church once or I went a time or two and you know, I found out that there's just a lot of hypocrites in the church. Now, what do you say to them? Well, if you're like me, what you want to say is, great, our church will be perfect for you then. But you should not say that. That would not be helpful, would it? No, no the better part of you would say, unfortunately, you have made a very accurate observation. In fact, the only churches I've ever gone to are full of hypocrites. If by hypocritical, people that are failing to meet the standard of God's perfect righteousness and justice and holiness and love. You see, the Bible says this, that when we are forgiven, we are forgiven completely. So now I am forgiven But man, does it take a while before we are restored into his likeness. We fell from his likeness, and we're still on our way. That's why Paul, when he writes to the church at Corinth, says this, we've received the Holy Spirit, and every day he is transforming us from glory to glory into the likeness of his dear son. Yeah. So, this is the human state. All of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. The second thing was written hundreds of years before by a seer in the Old Testament. His name was Isaiah. And he was looking forward in time. And he was envisioning the coming Messiah, the one sent from God who would right all wrongs, including forgiving sins and removing transgressions and purifying iniquity. Synonyms. And it says this, we all like sheep. Sheep get a bum rap, don't they? Yeah. I've heard that sheep are dumb. Any of you worked with sheep as I have? A few of you? Sheep aren't dumb. They just refuse to be led anywhere by anything. Yeah. It's a beautiful metaphor. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. 
And the Lord God has laid on him, Messiah, the iniquity or sin of us all. I want you to notice the categorical language in these two verses. All of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us like sheep have gone astray. All of us have turned to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Two categories of behavior. The category of humans All of us have gone our own way and we have fallen and we cannot help ourselves up spiritually. And God has put all of our sin on Messiah, his son Jesus, as forgiveness for all of us. This is the grand intervention of Christmas. And this is what dramatically differentiates Christianity from any world religion or any philosophy or way of life. Let's take a look at the third passage. It comes from the book of Hebrews. And this is a reason that God did, uh, made an intervention in the way uh, that he did. <clears throat> Actually going to, you are right, I was wrong. You notice that, don't you? All I have to do is look back here and I know where I'm going. Paul writes further in the book of Romans, and would you read it out loud with me together? For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I have wages, sin, and death. And then there's this wonderful three-letter word, but. It's the intervention word, but. Gift, God, eternal life. If someone this week were to say, I think I've heard that you're a Christian, tell me a little bit about that. What actually makes Christians distinct and why have you decided to be a Christ follower? Take a look at this graphic that comes up because this is what you could scratch out on a napkin that might help make some sense for them. Across the top, you could write that verse, Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, uh, I can do art like this, which means all of you can do better, right? This is wonderful and simple, and it's graphic. Over on the left-hand side, there's this uh, wonderful little stick person over here, and what she really wants is a relationship with God. But she is standing on a foundation which is absolutely going to make her slip and fall like every other human being. Because that's a foundation of, first of all, wages. So let's imagine that uh, Leonard is going to work tomorrow, the 2nd of December, and he works the next two weeks, and that you regularly get paid every two weeks. So on the 16th, you're ready to get paid. And you show up and there's no paycheck. This is not a good thing. Someone obviously made a decision. So you talk to the boss or HR or accounting and you say, there must be a mistake. I didn't get my paycheck. And the boss says, oh, you must have missed the memo. You know, usually there's like a a Christmas kind of a bonus for you. But this year we're doing a reverse bonus. We're letting all the employees give money back to the company this year. You said, not so fast on this thing. I have just worked for two weeks, and I have earned my wages. I have earned my check. You wouldn't go down easy. I wouldn't either. I'd be right there with you. I would. Because what's earned justly needs to be paid. That's what a wage is. Now, here's the deal. The wages of sin is what? It's death. It's 
It's not a decision. It is an irrevocable natural consequence. And what is death? Death is the separation of life. And we talk about someone who has died, and maybe we view their body, and we talk about their remains. Where does that euphemism come from? From the fact that we're acknowledging that the life, the person, the personality, the substance of the person has left. And what they've left are remains. Life has exited the body. Here's the big Bible story of humans that we started out to have a relationship with God, but the wages of sin was death. And the first being to experience death was the devil himself. When Satan rebelled and left heaven and took part of those celestial beings with him, he not only was the first one to experience separation from God, ultimate death, but he also was the one that now captured the rights to entrap and enslave others in that death. And in that grand outworking of the ultimate epic human failure as the first humans sinned and were excluded from the Garden of Eden paradise, in that exclusion they were driven out from God's presence, which is spiritual death separated from God. And their physical lives from that moment on began marching toward a certain physical death as well. And when a loved one dies now, we are reminded of the stark reality that the separation of life certainly happens. The wages of sin is death. And then this verse gives us this wonderful intervention. But, but God intervened on Christmas. And the gift of God is eternal life. And notice the two columns, one on the right or left and one on the right. Wages contrasts with gift. I earned death. I could never earn life. It has to be a gift. Sin contrasting with God. And death contrasting with eternal life. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Yeah. We needed an intervention, and we waited for that. A, f- a couple of uh, weeks ago, Ann and I uh, went with a couple of friends to see the Portland performance of The Fiddler on the Roof. Uh, any of you seen The Fiddler on the Roof? Are you familiar with it? Yeah. The, the dad is the, uh, both the central character and the comic character. And life is tough, but he tries to you know, keep a step off her lip and to be optimistic and to see the bright side of things. But at one point in the musical, life has gone from bad to horrible. And he's talking to the rabbi. And he says to the rabbi, we have waited for the Messiah to come for a long time. It seems to me that this would be a good time. Yeah. Have any of you been there? Yeah. If God is real and if he cares, this would be a really good time for him to show up. In God's perfect time, Jesus did come. Eternity is at stake. A life of with or without God. It was a few years ago, actually a bunch of years ago, that I was invited to facilitate a Bible study in the home of a former governor uh, in the state of Oregon. 
And so on Tuesday nights, I would drive to his place, and he and his wife lived out in uh, a wonderful uh, old uh, farmhouse in the country, west of Salem. And they invited a really eclectic group of people that were young and old and Christ followers and people far from God and singles and people who were partnered. And it was just a wonderful collection of people. And we would talk about what we had learned and kind of catch up on life. There were 12 to 18 of us. And then we would open up the Bible to the book of John and we just worked our way through John. Often the governor had stories about what had happened earlier on that Tuesday because you see, he would go to visit men who were on death row in the Oregon State Penitentiary. Now, it has never dawned on me in my life to go visit men on death row, and certainly not to make that my small group every week, but he did. I never asked him. He is now deceased. I wish I would have asked him what motivated him to do that, but I wonder if it was because, unlike any of us, he literally, when he held a pen in his hand as governor, he could have commuted their sentence and spared their life, or he could have pardoned them and set them free, but he didn't. I wonder if after his retirement that he had some connection with these men that he literally had had the power of death and life over. In any event, when he went, he would talk to them about life, and he would talk to them about Jesus, and one day he was so excited. On Tuesday night, his arms were just flailing all over the place, and he was spitting all over. It was just a, it was a wonderful thing. He was so excited because one of those men had committed his life to Christ, and he said, Jared, just like that prayer that you have people pray at the end of those church services, he said, I led him in that prayer. I first of all told him, you are a sinner, and you've done bad things, and he said, you are right about that, governor, and then I said to him, and you're only hope I'm not going to hell is to accept Jesus Christ's gifts of forgiveness for your sins. And the guy said, you're right about that governor. And the governor said, so you're going to repeat these words after me. And I had just told him to repeat these words, just like you do, Jerry. He said, I told him to say this, God, I am a sinner. And he repeated it. And I said, Jesus, I receive your forgiveness for my sins. And he repeated it. And then I said, like you do, I receive the Holy Spirit to come help me be a follower of Christ. And he repeated it. And I said, amen, and he said, amen. And he's all excited, and he's spitting, and he's throwing his arms all around, and we're all excited because this man had committed his life to Christ. And then we opened the book of John, and here's where the story turns interesting. We read, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but would have everlasting life. And the governor flipped the coin and began to argue against Christ's claims on his life. Because you see, there's nothing complicated with the gospel. A kid can understand the gospel, but it's not easy to accept the good news. Oh, that requires a ton of working through nasty pride and effort and the arrogance of I can work my own way out of that pit that I've fallen. It takes massive humility to say, I've not only fallen, but I can't get up. This is what differentiates Christianity from any other philosophy, religion, or worldview each of which would suggest to you, if you believe certain things, if you do certain practices, if you work yourself through certain levels, if you abide by our set of cultural and religious rules, you can somehow work your way out of that pit. No, but oh, the humility that's required to say, I have fallen and I need God's forgiveness to get up.
The story ends happily. He did eventually become a full committed follower of Christ. But it was an interesting story for me to experience at that season of his life. How much he believed this truth for others. And how hard it was for him to accept it for himself. And maybe you are a bright, gifted, experienced, and successful person as he was. And maybe you too have come to believe that God's revealed truth to us is right. And maybe you've even come to believe that it's right for some other people that you really wish were here today because you would nudge them and say, you need that. But all of us come one-on-one to the truth of Christ's claims on our life. Maybe today is your day of accepting his forgiveness. We're gonna pray at the end of this service and every week here at Evergreen, kids and students and adults commit their lives to Christ. This could be your day. Maybe next week then, you'll join others in being baptized in waters as we baptize here. Well, let's take a look at the second question. So how did God choose to intervene? Let's take a look at these two verses from Hebrews chapter two. It unpacks for us how God intervened and why he needed to. It says, because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the son also became flesh and blood. Let's pause for a moment. God, our father, is spirit. He's not embodied in a physical form. Jesus is very clear about that. Among other places in John chapter four, he talks about God being spirit. But when God made us his children, he chose to give us his image, which is spirit, but to put us in a physical body. Now here's the deal. Because we as his children, body, soul, and spirit, sinned and fell and were headed toward death, God had to himself, in the form of his son Jesus, come in human body. That's why Jesus was conceived in a woman, a virgin Mary. It's why his gestation period was nine months. It's why he was born that night that we celebrate on Christmas. Because God's children are human beings, made of flesh and blood, the son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. Only, only in this way. Not multiple choice. He didn't choose from a list of A, B, C, and Ds. Only in this way. Now, you notice in these passages that we've looked at today, there's only one that we're going to conclude with in a couple of minutes. In these passages, do you, do you notice the categorical language? It is exclusive language. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way. And upon him... The Lord laid the iniquity of us all. We're all in the same place. You say, well, I'm better than others. Probably true. But guess what? There's others better than you. And guess what? That doesn't make any difference either. 
Because at the end of the day, it's not going to be a celestial scales on which what is weighed out is, does my good outweigh the bad? Or what were my intentions? It's categorical. If you're a human, you're a part of all. We all need an intervention. And because we were all in the same state, there was only one, only one who could come. Only in this way could he set free all of us who are under the power of death and of the devil. God has chose to intervene. And that's why Jesus came as a baby born to a virgin in an outcropping of rock in which there was a manger and there were probably some straw and other food and there were cattle or other animals that were there for uh, animal products and there were probably animals to ride on or carry stuff for the caravans that were going through town. It was a crowded place, not by people, but by animals. And in that little place, in the most humble of human circumstances, God himself came in human form, and your intervention could not have happened any other way. I want to take a couple of minutes to read something that I have uh, written and pulled from a whole variety of sources. Each of them is, um, has historical integrity in terms of their research. Listen about that intervening night. Joseph and his recently married and very pregnant wife, Mary, traveled from Nazareth to another village, Bethlehem, to register in the population census. Mary delivered a baby boy, and a spiritual war broke out. It's no wonder that all hell broke loose at Jesus' birth and no human was more powerful, a more powerful expression of that satanic opposition than King Herod. Herod's heavily armed soldiers from the capital city of Jerusalem are marching to this small town, intent on finding and killing this baby boy. They are a mixed race group of foreign mercenaries from Greece, Gaul, and Syria. The child's only crime is that some believe that he will be the next king of the Jewish people. This current monarch, a half a dying half Jewish, half Arab despot named Herod, was so intent on ensuring the baby's death that his army had been ordered to murder every male child under the age of two years in Bethlehem. Now, since none of Herod's soldiers knew what the child's mother or father looked like or the precise location of his home, they thus needed to kill every baby boy in the small town and entire surrounding area. This alone will guarantee the extermination of the potential king. The soldier's blade is how they plan to kill the babies. Should they wish, however, Herod's, Herod's soldiers can use a skull-crushing stone, hurl the babies off a cliff en masse, or just wrap their fists around the infant's windpipes and strangle them. It makes no matter how. What matters is that this infant must die. Herod is now a man of 69 years his massive girth and incessant medical problems make it physically impossible for him to leave his palace in Jerusalem. 
He hobbles through the palace barefoot, suffering from painful gout. But this is the least of Herod's ailments. He also suffers from lung disease, kidney problems, worms, a heart condition, sexually transmitted diseases, and a horrible version of gangrene that has caused his genitals to rot and turn black. He has murdered anyone who has attempted to steal his throne. He ordered deaths by hanging, stoning, strangulation, fire, the sword, live animals, serpents, and beating. Herod had ten wives. That was until he had one of them executed for allegedly plotting against him. And for good measure, he had her mother killed also and two of their sons. And within a year of this event, he will murder a third male offspring. Small wonder that the great Roman Empire, Caesar Augustus, said publicly, it's better to be Herod's pig than to be his son. But this newest threat, a mere infant, is the most dangerous of all. For centuries, Jewish prophets have predicted that the coming of a new king to rule their people, and they prophesied that five specific occurrences will take place to confirm his birth. The first is that a great star will rise. The second is that a baby will be born in Bethlehem, the small town where the great King David was born a thousand years before. The third Prophecy is that a child must be a direct descendant of David. Fourth, powerful men will come from afar to worship him. And fifth, finally, the child's mother must be a virgin. What troubles Herod deeply is that he knows that the first two of these to be true, he would be even more distressed to learn that all five had come to pass. And further, he does not know that this child's name is Jesus, which means the Lord is salvation. No wonder all hell broke loose. No wonder Herod, as an agent of that hell, would lash out with such anger. This is how God chose to intervene to send his only son to be born as a baby, born in a barn. That would raise immediate fear and hatred, not for what he had done, but for who he was and for who, what he would do. This is God's epic intervention. Hmm. So third question. What does it mean to me? Joseph was visited in a dream by an angel. Poor guy. What a quandary. Engaged, she gets pregnant, tells him she's still a virgin. God showed up and pregnanted her. What's he to believe? An angel comes and tells him, it's okay, Joseph. You can trust. You can trust God. You can trust her. This is what's really going on, Joseph. She Mary will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will, would you read it out loud with me? Save his people from their sins. That's what his name means. That's God's great intervention. Hmm. A few weeks ago, I went to a conference. I 
first night, I looked across the room. I saw them, handsome couple. They looked so healthy. They looked so happy. They were engaged with other friends, catching up with old friends, making new friends. I, I hoped that over the course of the conference, I would be able to talk to them. The next morning, I was in my lobby. It was in the lobby. It was fairly vacant, which probably means I either came late or I was skipping out. I won't tell you which. And there she came. She was looking for me. There weren't very many words exchanged. There were tears in her eyes. She held something up, and she said, Jared, this will mean something to you. She held up a nine-year sobriety coin. Hmm. It had on the face AA's famous triangle. It's three words there. One of those is courage. On the back side of the coin was the, the serenity prayer. It said nine years. The token that one receives after a week of sobriety, after a month, and each successive month, and then each successive years, nine sober years. She got her life back. There wasn't a lot to say. I just, I told her how proud I was of her. Nine years before, Ann and I had gotten on a plane. We flew to another state. We were picked up in an SUV. The seven friends went to the house. The husband welcomed us in. And we told her basically three things. We love you. You are breaking apart your life. And number three, you've got to get help. And she did. And she's a living story of a life recovered. Wow. There was a retired governor who for some reason went every Tuesday to Salem to the penitentiary to visit guys on death row knowing that he had held the life of a pardon in his hand and had not pardoned them, but he knew that there was one God who ultimately could pardon them and give them regardless of when and how they died physically, everlasting life, and he went every Tuesday to tell them the story God loves you. You've done horrible things in your life, and you need to receive Christ's forgiveness. And that is what this holy intervention is all about. Mary could have never known. When in that barn, she gave birth to a baby, wrapped him up in cloths like a cocoon, and laid him in hay in a manger where cattle fed that this baby would grow up to work in his dad's carpentry shop and then at age 30 would go public and God would favor him with amazing miracles, but the end of his life would be horrific and she would stand watching his dying breath at the foot of a cross and then would not only hear the rumors of, but would actually see the resurrected Christ. How could Mary have known? 